Uh, so July of this year, 22 years ago, marks the date that I met the woman that would become my wife and began to date her. Now, dating is interesting because you have two goals when you're dating someone. This is free advice to the single people out here. Uh, the first one, you know, is obviously you got to put your best foot forward, right? Like you, you want to convince this person that you really are worthy of their attention and continued conversation. And then the second one is you need to work and try to find out what, what is this person like? What, what can I really expect? Now, the problem with that is both of you have those goals and those goals work against each other, right? So you're both trying to put forward, I mean, if you like each other, you are at least, uh, you're trying to put forward your, your best foot. And at the same time, you're, you're asking the question, who is this person? What should I expect if I was to follow this person? And so we do some things that, that make it difficult and, and actually can take a, a long time to figure out, uh, is this person a person I want to spend the rest of my life? Because you're really not sure. Because you know your goals and you know they have the same goals, right? So for example, on our second date, uh, we had a great first date, went downtown, had, had a good time, and she agreed to a second date, which I... You know, I didn't date many people, but more, normally they didn't go to that second date either. So I was surprised. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get my, you know, my game on. And I had taken Psychology 101 at CSU. So I knew that uh, you don't go on a date. You don't take anyone to a movie. That's dumb, okay? And that's, again, free for you young people, for you single people, uh, because uh, it's just silent. You're not, you're, not, you're not achieving any of your goals. You can't put yourself forward. You're not learning about that person. Okay, that's a side note. But... What you need to do is something exciting, something fun, because psychologically speaking, they will attach that to you. And so uh, we said, you know, what, what more can I get adrenaline going than Illich's? So we're going to go on to Illich's on our second date. And we're heading down there and had a good first date. And, and so I just kind of explored what, what do you like to eat? And um, this was before Chipotle was everywhere. Uh, this is, we just wanted to grab something quickly. Uh, so, but it was a burrito restaurant, and, and Jennifer was a vegetarian. And so I'm like, oh, that's cool. I, I'm cool with that. And so uh, uh, we go there, and, and she goes through the line, and she orders her burrito. And I'm like, they, they sir, sir, what will you have? And I'm like, I'll just have what she had. And they're like, okay, you want brown beans and black beans and brown rice and and white rice and uh, sour cream and cheese. I'm like, sure, wrap it up. And so they give me the burrito and uh, she's like loving it. She's like, this is awesome. This is good. And I'm like, this is a lot of rice. <laughs> it beads. And I'm getting full. And so I get about halfway through. And I'm like, that is terrible. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm putting for it. Now, if I was to do that today, after 19 years of marriage, I went to Chipotle with my wife and I said, I'll take a vegetarian burrito. She would laugh in my face because she knows that she, she, they make fun of me because I do have a Pinterest account now for the sole purpose of getting meat smoked meat recipes on Pinterest. So um, like if I could just eat meat, I'd be happy. That'd be a happy thing. And, and so it, it took some time for her to realize, you really, you're really not a vegetarian. And, and uh but she loved me nonetheless, and so we continued to go on. And, and even after 19 years, there's still this, what, what really should I expect? What, what do I really know? I mean, we, we've come a long way. She knows that I'm, uh, I'm not going to eat a vegetarian burrito and, and other things, but um, there's still this expectation that we're trying to figure out going forward as we grow and change and stuff like that. 
Well, last week, we, uh, as we continue through our series in the Gospel of John, uh, John is kind of unpacking for the whole first chapter of what we can expect uh, going forward. Um, and, and, and as Matthew and I met this week and began to dig into this passage, we were, we were looking at it and we said, actually, it's all introduction. This whole, it's three weeks of introduction. But uh, last week, we looked at John the Baptist because because John, the gospel writer and the disciple, is, is bringing forth witnesses, and, and he has a very specific purpose, really two purposes that he wants us to, to see, and they complement each other. He wants us to look at his whole gospel through these two lens. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, so that the rest of the the book of John is going to put on display the glory of Jesus. And so we should ask when we come to the passage, how does this passage put on display the glory of Jesus. And then the the second one is at the end of his gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things were written, though I could write many, many more things. These things were written so that you might believe. And in believing, you would receive eternal life. And so that's the lens that we look at this. And when we, last week, when we looked at John the Baptist, we saw his whole life and ministry was to point us to to feast our eyes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I I saw this video last week. I wanted to show it to you, but there was some cursing in it, so I decided that's a bad, bad deal. Uh, It was bleeped out, but um, it's just a short video. um, And uh, this guy in Los Angeles, he, uh, he said he was bored one night, so he brought out his giant telescope onto the streets of L.A., and he pointed it up at the moon and uh, attached the, the eyepiece and, and shoots this video of these people walking by, and they're like, what is that? Because it doesn't look like what you're thinking, a telescope. It, it, I hadn't seen anything like this before. And so he would invite people to look through the eyepiece. And as they would come in, they would look through the eyepiece at the moon and it, it, up close and personal. Uh, there's this scene in the video where 10 people in a row, they all say the same thing. They all say, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my God. And in that moment, I, I'm sure they were saying more than they knew. Uh, it was the natural response when they saw the glory of the moon to exult in praise. And, and they were saying, oh my God. And, and John is kind of like a, a telescope for us, for Jesus to, to look through and, and behold and feast our eyes. But now imagine if we had the technology, if after they looked through the telescope, uh, someone said, actually, we want to take you to the moon now. <laughs> we, can, we can get you there. You, you want to go to the moon? Uh, imagine the different responses in that. It's one thing to look and see the moon, but it's another thing to say, I'm going to go to the moon. And so uh, it's, I imagine some people would be like, yes, sign me up. How, how do I go to that place? And other people would be like, I don't know about that. Is it safe? Like, and other people would be like, mm, I'll pass. And others would be like, well, can I do it next week? I got a, I got a dentist appointment tomorrow and I don't want to meet, miss that. And then so um, when you start to understand the difference between as important as it is and, and, and what we say all the time, we, we want to come here and, and continue to see and savor Jesus. As important as that is, following Jesus is a whole different thing. Coming to church and following Jesus is a whole different thing. Seeing through a telescope and admiring Jesus and following Jesus is a different thing. And so as 
we are called to be followers. And as we see the first followers, John is going to answer a question. He, it's not going to be like a dating relationship where you kind of wonder what to expect. From the very beginning of this passage, uh, John is going to set our expectations. Here's what you should expect if you follow Jesus. Anyone that has their life captured by Jesus, there are at least two expectations, and he's going to be very clear with us on that. But let's go ahead, and before we get to that, let's go ahead and uh, just work through the passage a little bit and see what the expectations are. Uh, Verse 35, it starts, it says, "The, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, one of the disciples is named Andrew. The other one is probably the writer of the book. John often shows up in his own gospel, but in, in kind of a hidden way. And so one of the reasons scholars think that is because the detail, uh, the next day, the 10th hour, and, and, and John doesn't like to mention himself, but so he's there. He's an eyewitness, and, and he's probably a disciple of John the Baptist. So, so it's a good probability the guy that's writing this was first a disciple of John the Baptist. And as we know, John had a very large following. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, he had said that the day before, remember? That is, feast your eyes on Jesus. And now when he says it this time, they connect the dots. Let's not just look at Jesus. If that really is the Messiah, if he really is the one who speaks and quasars find their existence, I'm sorry, John, I'm going to go with Jesus. And, and John's fine with that. That's really his, his goal and his purpose, right? In John chapter 3, John says, I must decrease, he must increase. Uh, and, and, and John is uh, doing his ministry well in that sense. But verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, this is the first time in John's gospel, but it's not the last time, where Jesus is going to talk on one level, on a much deeper metaphysical, uh, eternal level, and they're going to be on a a surface level. We're going to see it with Nicodemus on what does it mean to be born again. We're going to see it with the the Samaritan woman on, on living water. We're going to see it throughout John's gospel, but Jesus is always trying to take us deeper and deeper. And so he asks this, he asks this question, and really John is, is recounting this true history, but through the Spirit of God, the Spirit is asking you this question. It's a good question. What are you seeking? Like, what keeps you up at night? What do you get creative with your bank account so that you can make sure you can accomplish in your life? What are you seeking? Where are you trying to find satisfaction and meaning and purpose to your life? He asked them this question, and they miss it. It's over their heads. And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, and again, he's speaking on this other level, come and you will see. I love that about Christianity because Christianity always invites investigation. Like if if you're not a follower here this morning and you're just investigating, we're glad you're here. This is a a great place for you to investigate. It may take a while. It may take years. For me, it took six to eight months, somewhere in that time uh, of exploration where God was wooing uh, me to himself and opening my eyes. It it took some time, and and Jesus says, just come and see. 
You want to know what to expect? Just, just come and see. And so, uh, again, they, they don't quite get that, but John wants you to get that. So, so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, so 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 40, and one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, by the time John writes this gospel, Simon Peter, or Peter, is uh, a leader of the church. And so he's very famous. Andrew, not so much. And so he's helping us understand who's the players here. But Andrew first becomes a disciple. Verse 41, he first found his own brother. Or it could be translated, the first thing he did, the very first thing he did after encountering the Messiah and, and, and conversation with him, he leaves and he goes and finds his brother. Why? Because he loves his brother and he loves his Messiah and the two he wants to connect. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. That's a profoundly simple statement we'll get back to in a moment, but I love that statement. Jesus looked at him, and now we're going to see Jesus set some expectations. From the very first encounter with Jesus, he's going to set the expectations. He looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. What's the expectation? We see it in the other encounters with Jesus as well. When you come to Jesus, the moment you come to Jesus, Jesus is going to lay claim on your life. Your life will no longer be your own. He is laying claim on Cephas' life. He's saying, I know who you are. You're Simon. You will be Cephas. You will be, if you had any idea where this thing is going to go, you little fishermen from Galilee, you're going to be a part of the, the greatest movement the world has ever seen, and you're going to lead it. It's not just a predictive statement, though. It's a statement of Jesus' power to transform. God, in his love, what he calls us, he makes us. So in the Old Testament, in uh, Judges chapter 6, there's this guy named Gideon, and he's terrified. He's hiding in a wine press, and he's terrified because he thinks the enemies of God's people are about to roll through and decimate the whole land, destroy everyone. And so as he's hiding there, as he's shivering, an angel of the Lord says, uh, shows up and he says, Behold, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. <laughs> and Gideon's like, Are you serious? <laughs> Why? Because he was calling him in love what he was going to make him become, a mighty man of valor. And he does it with us as well. This is why we are called saints. We have the righteousness of God on us because of our, by grace through faith and trusting in Christ. But practically on this side of eternity, we still fall short. We still sin. And yet God calls you saint, holy one, set apart. What he calls you by his love, he makes you. And so he is saying to Simon, and he's saying to us, I know you, I know who you are, and I know who I'm making you. You will be called Cephas. It continues to go on. But verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now this is a little bit of a different interaction. Now Jesus in his sovereign power and authority just goes out, he seeks, he finds what he seeks, and he says, follow me. 
No questions, no, no, do you want to talk about this? He just, in sovereign grace, calls him to himself. So some of you, the way that you came to know Jesus was in a dramatic instance. Some of us, it was six to eight months. Some of us, it was years. But, but here, it's just Jesus laying claim on, Nathaniel, uh, on Philip's life. Follow me. I think of uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon. When, when he was preaching, young man, he was able to just... He had anointing of God on him very clearly because uh, Matthew and I could say the exact same words and just not see that result. But uh, nonetheless, he, he had the problem that he had was he was always growing into bigger and bigger places, and uh, he, needed, he needed a place where 14,000 people at a time could come into a great hall so he could preach the gospel. And uh, he was always trying to find a, the bigger and bigger place, and people were getting saved and getting saved. And as he went into this one place to test out the acoustics, because again, there's no PA system, he had to project to 14,000 thousand people and he wanted to see, can I do this? He went into this empty auditorium, hall, whatever the case may be, and he wanted to test it out. And so what did he do? He just said this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he listens for the reverb and he wants to just know, is that, is that uh, going to work for him? And he, he walks out of the room. Well, he didn't know that there was a worker up in the rafters, not a believer, who all of a sudden hears this booming voice, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God in that moment quickens his soul and and opens his eyes spiritually, transfers him from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son in a moment. And God can do that today and rescues him. Well, that, that was true of Philip, but then look what Philip does. Philip, similarly to Andrew, just is the natural overflow of being rescued and redeemed, having met the Savior, having met the Messiah, goes and tells others. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, that means fishing village, the city of Andrew and Peter. It's up in Galilee. They're all fishermen. They're not, they're not the upper crust of society. They're not the, the, the best of the best, but these are who's coming to become disciples. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a good question. <laughs> because uh, in the northern part of Israel, the, the, those people were considered the country bumpkins, the uneducated, the thick accent. I mean, we see this in, in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts when, when John and Peter are brought before the, the uh, Sanhedrin and they're like, we could see that they're unschooled, untrained, ordinary men, but that they had been with Jesus. Uh, they, they were discriminated against in the north. And so if you're being discriminated against, what do you do? You look for someone else to discriminate against. That was the Nazarenes. And so his whole life, he grew up thinking, man, uh, we're pretty bad, but we're not as bad as the Nazarenes, I guess. I guess if it's, well, I better not say that, never mind. Um, I was going to say it, but I won't say it. Um, Now I'll pick myself up here. Uh, He was just, I'm really distracted with that thought. Uh, Okay, so he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And uh, it's a good question. And, and again, Philip doesn't know, you know everything about Jesus. He just knows he's been transformed. He's, been, he's had an encounter with Jesus. And so he says, well, I think we found the exception. Why don't you just come and, and see? And so Jesus, it's at verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, in spite of his incredulity, in spite of his um, prejudice, uh, there, there was something about Nathaniel. The word is there was no guile. There was no, um, there's no hypocrisy in this guy. What you saw is what you get, got. And so uh, he desired to follow God. Uh, and as he came, Jesus just x-rays him and says, this is who you are. I know who you are. I can work with that. Well, we'll deal with your prejudice against Nazareth in a minute, but um, I can work with this guy. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, now something happens in that moment that John doesn't really let us in on, but we know from, from Nathanael's very next words that something transformative happened in that moment. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Well, what happened there? Jesus is just saying, I I not only see you, I not only know you, I know everything about you. When you thought you were just under that tree, you you know what you were thinking about, Nathanael. I know what you were thinking about. When you had that struggle last week, I know what you were struggling with. Whatever you thought, I know what you thought. Whatever you said, I know what you said. Whatever you did, I know what you did, Nathaniel. I know you inside and outside, and he connects the dots. This person knows me more than I know myself. This person must be the Son of God. Something happens in that moment, but so, so we see that the first thing that you can expect if you come to Jesus, he's going to lay claim on your life. He, he knows you. He sees you. He knows everything about you. He knows all your thoughts in the last week. He knows all the kind words and the unkind words. He knows uh, all the sin in our lives. He knows all that. And that's, this is what's so amazing, that in spite of that, because if any one of us in this moment was to uh, have our life replayed over the last week and all of our thoughts and all, all of our sin and all that, we would be embarrassed and never want to see any one of us again. But God knows. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, God, Christ died for us. So he knows you. He not only knows you, he made you. He's laying claim on your life. And, it, and your sin and all the shame and all, all that doesn't drive him away. It drives him to you. He enters in and he comes to you on a rescue mission. He lays claim on your life. He says, I'm going to, I know who you are. I know who I'm making you. I, I, I will lay claim on your life. I saw you. So that's the first thing. He lays claim on our life. And then... Verse 50, the first thing he lays claim on in life, the second thing you can expect when you come to Jesus is that he's going to usher you into a far greater, a far more profound, a far more eternally significant life than you could ever dream or imagine. Apart from Christ, your life is infinitesimally small. It is. Say, no, 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 I'm, 
I've got this degree and that degree, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, and I am a CEO. And I said, yes, it's still very, very small. I said, no, no, I, I, I'm going to leave this company, and, and at, at the end of 40 years, they're going to throw a retirement party for you, and they're going to say some nice things. And after you walk out the door, someone's going to come up to your nameplate and throw it in the trash and put someone else's name in there, and you will be forgotten. And I will be forgotten. And maybe a generation, two, probably not three generations, there'll be some vague memory of you, but that will be it. And when Jesus comes into your life, he says, I'm going to give you so much, something so much grander than that, so much, so, something so much uh, greater than this small life that you've been living. He's inviting us into something greater. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you... <coughs> I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? He's like, that's, that's nothing. <laughs> yeah, I know you inside and out, but really that's nothing. And then he says this, you will see greater things than these. Now, this is where it gets masked a little bit because um, of course he's talking to Nathaniel, but when John writes it, the you there is something we don't have in English. Well, I mean, I guess if you're from Birmingham, you have it. Y'all. It's a plural you. We don't have a plural you unless you're from Birmingham. Y'all. Y'all will see greater things than these. All of a sudden, he's talking to Nathaniel, but really he's talking to us. He says, when Jesus lays claim on your life, he's ushering you into greater things. You will see greater things things. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, amen, 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 amen. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world is going on there? Well, this is a, another sermon from another time, but he's, he's referencing a scene in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 28. In, in one sense, Jesus is saying, all the stories are about me. They all point to me. In fact, all the great stories, not even the, the Bible stories, but all the great stories are about me. Beauty and the Beast, it's about me. It's about the power of love that can transform. Sleeping Beauty is about me. It's about the power of love that can bring the dead to life. It's all about me. And, and he's pointing to this scene in Genesis chapter 28. And he says, you're going to see that. Jacob, Jacob, who would become Israel, Jacob, who was a deceiver, but then when he became Israel, he, he was no longer deceptive. And, and I think that has something to do with Nathaniel. He says, uh, here's someone who has no deceit, a true Israelite. But nonetheless, he's, he's in a field one night, and he lays down, in a, and a rock is his pillow, and God sends him a dream. And in the dream, he sees this scene. He sees uh, heaven opened up, and he sees a ladder, and the angels and, are ascending and descending. And when Jacob wakes up, he says, this is the act of presence of God on earth. And he names the place Bethel, house of God. He says, this is where God dwells. This is where God is at. And Jesus says, you, plural, y'all will see that. You're, you're going to see the work of God. When, when I lay claim on your life, you're going to see the work of God through my life. And it's not just going to be when you die and you're going to go to heaven someday. For, for Nathaniel, it's going to happen tomorrow. 
He's going to begin to see God's work and power working out in Cana. He's going to see all sorts of things. And the other disciples as well, they're going to see Jesus speak with such authority that the world has never seen. They're going to see his miracles. They're going to see the highway to heaven opened up and the work of God on earth through Jesus. They're going to see Jesus betrayed. They're going to see Jesus crucified. And in that moment, they're not going to understand that they're still seeing the work of God until Jesus is buried and he comes back to life. And then they see that was the work of God. In fact, that was the greatest work of God. But it doesn't end there. It continues on after Jesus ascends to heaven and they see the gospel explode in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. They see churches planted in the subcontinent of Turkey. They see it jump over the Aegean Sea into Greece on the peninsula there. They see it jump over the Mediterranean into Italy. They see it go on to Spain. They see it cover North Africa. They see it go all the way to India. In their lifetime, they see much greater things than just Jesus saying, I saw you under a fig tree. But the work doesn't stop there. If we had time and a grasp of church history, we could trace it all out and we could see it continue to spread, continue to spread, come to America, spread across the West Coast, continue to spread, continue to spread to the work of God in Parker, Colorado. And if we had eyes to see, and if God would give us, we would see it working in our neighborhoods, and we would see a heaven opened up in our gospel communities, and even in a place called the Performing Arts Center on Sunday mornings, 2,000 years after this, heaven opened, angels ascending and descending, and the work of God present amongst his people. You will see greater things than these. So that's what you're to expect now, as a kind of P.S. over all of this, and it's a, certainly a sermon for another time, but do you see? It's not just that you get to see the work of God. You get to be a part of the work of God. This should blow our minds. Sinners, rebels, enemies of God, transformed by the love and power of God to become instruments of God's work. You don't just get to see it. You get to be a part of it. And we see this throughout even this passage. As the first disciples come, one thing, it's, it's, it's profound. But the other thing, it's just very natural. It's very normal. It's a brother going to a brother. It's a friend going to a friend. It's a, someone going back to their hometown and saying, I've found the Messiah. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. It's, it's simple. We, we try to make it more complicated than it is. But, you know, let me, let me just ask this. Let's do an all play here for a second. I'm going to ask if you're a follower of Christ. If you're not a follower, we're glad you're here. We want you to continue to come and see. We want you to engage in conversation. We'd love for you to join a gospel community. All those things, yes. But if you are a follower, I want you to think about God's primary means for bringing you into the kingdom. I'm going to put forward two scenarios that we see. They're biblical scenarios. We see it even in this passage. Uh, they don't necessarily cover all the scenarios, but I want to just put forth two, because in a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So some of us, uh, we, like, like, uh, like at Charles Spurgeon's ministry, went to a Bible study or were at church, heard a sermon preached, and something happened in that moment. Our eyes were opened, and through the proclamation, through the preaching of God's word, people were rescued and redeemed. That's some of us. Others of us can trace it back to a brother, 
a, a friend, an acquaintance, maybe a stranger. And they sat down with us and began to explain. And those were the first moments that God began to draw you into the kingdom. So I want to ask this question. If you're in that first category, if, if it was because you, you, the ministry of the word being proclaimed or preached or a, or a Bible study, something like that, was God's primary means for bringing you into the kingdom, go ahead and raise your hand there. Okay. Praise God for that. Now, if you're in the second category, if it was a, a friend or, or a family member, a, a, an acquaintance, a brother, a sister, and that was God's primary means, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. That's huge. And if we were to count it, it's probably more. Now, we believe in the preaching of God's word. We believe it in its power by the Spirit to convert sinners to saints. We, we, we believe that with all our hearts. But we don't believe that's the only purpose of the preaching of God's word. The, the, the other purpose is to edify the saints, to encourage and equip the saints, to send out the saints. See, uh, for some reason in the West, even in this room, probably if we did a survey, uh, maybe subconsciously we think the way most people would come to Christ is if we could just get them to church and then they would come to Christ. And, and God does use that. Uh, and yet by our own testimony, the majority of us said it was through a friend, a family member, a coworker. And yet we've thought, well, we just need to get them somewhere. No, you are invited not only to see the work of God, but to be a part of the work of God in your natural relationships with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Believe God. Trust God. Believe that his arm is not too short to save through you. So a few years ago, or many years ago, I was doing a, a teaching on on evangelism training, just helping people share their faith. And it's really quite simple, uh, but at this church, we were meeting on Sunday mornings, and, and each week there'd be some homework, some assignment. And after the first week, uh, it was simply to ask, ask someone some questions. And the questions were uh, simple questions. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? To you, who is Jesus? And a few more like that. And so I gave him the assignment. I said, just go ask some people these questions this week. And there was a girl there. She was from El Salvador. And she went and came back. She came back early to class the next week. And she looked worried. And she said, um, I think I did something wrong. I was like, well, what happened? She's like, well, I asked my friend. My friend's also from El Salvador. I asked them if they have any spiritual beliefs. And I asked them what they think about Jesus. And it just began this conversation. That's all you trained us to do at this point, Mark. And uh, and, and we were talking, and she said she wanted to be a follower of Christ, and so she, she became a Christian. I think I did something wrong. I'm like, I don't think you did anything wrong. You'd be surprised, because it's not about you anyway. God will use broken vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from him and not from us. So believe God. Believe God that he wants to not only let you see the work of God, but be part of the work of God. Jesus makes, lays claim on your life, and Jesus invites you into something far greater than you could ever hope, dream, or imagine. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you for the truth of it. Lord, I, I, I confess and admit I have no idea the scope of that of what happened, but I, I know that 
Uh, You want to do greater things. You want us to see greater things, and you want us to be a part of greater things that you are doing. And Lord, that will matter forever and ever and ever. And we give our lives away to things that ultimately don't matter. And so, Lord, would would you help us to even repent of those things? God, I pray for the people here right now. God, if, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, has not seen that you are making claim on their life, Lord, I pray that you'd open their eyes to your beauty, your mercy, your grace, your truth, your sovereignty, your authority, Lord. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, would you uh, give us the courage and really the joy to talk to a friend, a family member, a brother, a sister, a mom or a dad, a son or a daughter this week about you and, and give us eyes to see the greater things. Give us eyes to see the angels ascending and descending in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.